Chapter Twenty Seven of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eva Easton. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two. Paris and Prison by Giacomo Casanova Translated by Arthur Machin Episode 10 Chapter 27 I had suffered from a kind of rash, which as it came off had left some red spots on my arms, and occasionally caused me some irritation. I told Lawrence to ask the doctor for a cure, and the next day he brought me a piece of paper, which the secretary had seen, and on which the doctor had written, Regulate the food for a day, and the skin will be cured by four ounces of oil of sweet almonds, or an ointment of flour of sulphur. But this local application is hazardous. Never mind the danger, said I to Lawrence. Buy me the ointment, or rather get me the sulphur, as I have some butter by me, and I can make it up myself. Have you any matches? Give me a few. He found some in his pockets, and he gave me them. What a small thing brings comfort in distress! But in my place these matches were no small thing, but rather a great treasure. I had puzzled my head for several hours as to what substitute I could find for tinder, the only thing I still lacked, and which I could not ask for under any pretense whatsoever when I remembered that I had told the tailor to put some under the armpits of my coat to prevent the perspiration spoiling the stuff. The coat, quite new, was before me, and my heart began to beat. But supposing the tailor had not put it in, thus I hung between hope and fear. I had only to take a step to know all. But such a step would have been decisive, and I dared not take it. At last I drew nigh, and feeling myself unworthy of such mercies, I fell on my knees, and fervently prayed of God that the tailor might not have forgotten the tinder. After this heartfelt prayer I took my coat, unsewed it, and found the tinder. My joy knew no bounds. I naturally gave thanks to God, since it was with confidence in Him that I took courage and searched my coat and I returned thanks to him with all my heart. I now had all the necessary materials, and I soon made myself a lamp. Let the reader imagine my joy at having, in a manner, made light in the midst of darkness, and it was no less sweet because against the orders of my infamous oppressors. Now there was no more night for me, and also no more salad, for though I was very fond of it, the need of keeping the oil to give light caused me to make this sacrifice without it costing me many pangs. I fixed upon the first Monday in Lent to begin the difficult work of breaking through the floor, for I suspected that in the tumult of the carnival I might have some visitors, and I was in the right. At noon, on Quinquagesima Sunday, I heard the noise of the bolts, and presently Lawrence entered, followed by a thick-set man whom I recognized as the Jew 
Gabriel Chalon, known for lending money to young men. We knew each other, so exchanged compliments. His company was by no means agreeable to me, but my opinion was not asked. He began by congratulating me on having the pleasure of his society, and by way of answer I offered him to share my dinner, but he refused, saying he would only take a little soup and would keep his appetite for a better supper at his own house. When? This evening. You heard when I asked for my bed, he told me that we would talk about that tomorrow. That means plainly that I shall have no need of it. And do you think it likely that a man like me would be left without anything to eat? That was my experience. Possibly, but between ourselves our cases are somewhat different, and without going any farther into that question, the inquisitors have made a mistake in arresting me, and they will be in some trouble, I am certain, as how to atone for doing so. They will possibly give you a pension. A man of your importance has to be conciliated. True, there's not a broker on the exchange more useful than myself, and the five sages have often profited by the advice I have given them. My detention is a curious incident, which perchance will be of service to you. Indeed, how may I ask? I will get you out of here in a month's time. I know to whom to speak, and what way to do it. I reckon on you, then. You may do so. This knave and fool together believed himself to be somebody. He volunteered to inform me as to what was being said of me in the town. But as he only related the idle tales of men as ignorant as himself, he wearied me, and to escape listening to him I took up a book. The fellow had the impudence to ask me not to read, as he was very fond of talking, but henceforth he talked only to himself. I did not dare to light my lamp before this creature, and as night drew on he decided on accepting some bread and cypress wine, and he was afterwards obliged to do as best he could with my mattress, which was now the common bed of all newcomers. In the morning he had a bed and some food from his own house. I was burdened with this wretched fellow for two months, for before condemning him to the fours the secretary had several interviews with him to bring to light his knaveries, and to oblige him to cancel a goodly number of illegal agreements. He confessed to me himself that he had bought of M. Domenico Micheli the right to monies which could not belong to the buyer till after the father of the seller was dead. It's true, said he, that he agreed to give me fifty per cent, but you must consider that if he died before his father I should lose all. At last, seeing that my cursed fellow did not go, I determined to light my lamp again after having made him promise to observe secrecy. He only kept his promise while he was with me, as Lawrence knew all about it, but luckily he attached no importance to the fact. This unwelcome guest was a true burden to me, as he not only prevented me from working for my escape, but also from reading. He was troublesome, ignorant, superstitious, a braggart, cowardly, and sometimes like a madman. He would have had me cry, since fear made him weep, and he said over and over again that this imprisonment would ruin his reputation. On this count I reassured him with a sarcasm he did not understand. 
I told him that his reputation was too well known to suffer anything from this little misfortune, and he took that for a compliment. He would not confess to being a miser, but I made him admit that if the inquisitors would give him a hundred sequins for every day of his imprisonment, he would gladly pass the rest of his life under the leads. He was a Talmudist, like all modern Jews, and he tried to make me believe that he was very devout. But I once extracted a smile of approbation from him by telling him that he would forswear Moses if the Pope would make him a cardinal. As the son of a rabbi, he was learned in all the ceremonies of his religion. But, like most men, he considered the essence of a religion to lie in its discipline and outward forms. This Jew, who was extremely fat, passed three-quarters of his life in bed, and though he often dozed in the daytime, he was annoyed at not being able to sleep at night, all the more as he saw that I slept excellently. He once took it into his head to wake me up as I was enjoying my sleep. "'What do you want?' said I, waking me up with a start like this. "'My dear fellow, I can't sleep a wink. Have compassion on me, and let us have a little talk. You scoundrel! You act thus, and you dare to call yourself my friend? I know your lack of sleep torments you. But if you again deprive me of the only blessing I enjoy, I will arise and strangle you. I uttered these words in a kind of transport. Forgive me for mercy's sake, and be sure that I will not trouble you again. It is possible that I should not have strangled him, but I was very much tempted to do so. A prisoner who is happy enough to sleep soundly, all the while he sleeps, is no longer a captive, and feels no more the weight of his chains. He ought to look upon the wretch who awakens him as a guard who deprives him of his liberty, and makes him feel his misery once more, since, awakening, he feels all his former woes. Furthermore, the sleeping prisoner often dreams that he is free again, in like manner as the wretch dying of hunger sees himself in dreams seated at a sumptuous feast. I congratulated myself on not having commenced my great work before he came, especially as he required that the room should be swept out. The first time he asked for it to be done, the guards made me laugh by saying that it would kill me. However, he insisted, and I had my revenge by pretending to be ill but from interested motives I made no further opposition. On the Wednesday in Holy Week, Lawrence told us that the secretary would make us the customary visit in the afternoon, the object being to give peace to them that would receive the sacrament at Easter, and also to know if they had anything to say against the jailer. So, gentlemen, said Lawrence, if you have any complaints to make of me, make them. Dress yourselves fully, as is customary. I told Lawrence to get me a confessor for the day. I put myself into full dress, and the Jew followed my example, taking leave of me in advance, so sure was he that the secretary would set him free on hearing what he had to say. My presentiment, said he, is of the same kind as I have had before, and I have never been deceived. I congratulate you, but don't reckon without your host. He did not understand what I meant. 
In the course of time the secretary came, and as soon as the cell door was opened, the Jew ran out and threw himself at his feet on both knees. I heard for five minutes nothing but his tears and complaints, for the secretary said not one word. He came back, and Lawrence told me to go out. With a beard of eight months' growth, and a dress made for love-making in August, I must have presented a somewhat curious appearance. Much to my disgust I shivered with cold, and was afraid that the secretary would think I was trembling with fear. As I was obliged to bend low to come out of my hole, my bow was ready-made, and drawing myself up, I looked at him calmly, without affecting any unseasonable hardihood, and waited for him to speak. The secretary also kept silent, so that we stood, facing each other like a pair of statues. At the end of two minutes, the secretary, seeing that I said nothing, gave me a slight bow and went away. I re-entered my cell, and taking off my clothes in haste, got into bed to get warm again. The Jew was astounded at my not having spoken to the secretary, although my silence had cried more loudly than his cowardly complaints. A prisoner of my kind has no business to open his mouth before his judge, except to answer questions. On Monday, Thursday, a Jesuit came to confess me, and on Holy Saturday, a priest of St. Mark's came to administer to me the Holy Communion. My confession appearing rather too laconic to the sweet son of Ignatius, he thought good to remonstrate with me before giving me his absolution. Do you pray to God, he said, from the morning unto the evening, and from the evening unto the morning, for, placed as I am, all that I feel, my anxiety, my grief, all the wanderings of my mind, can be but a prayer in the eyes of the divine wisdom which alone sees my heart. The Jesuit smiled slightly, and replied by a discourse rather metaphysical than moral, which did not at all tally with my views. I should have confuted him on every point, if he had not astonished me by a prophecy he made. Since it is from us, said he, that you learnt what you know of religion, practice it in our fashion, pray like us, and know that you will only come out of this place on the day of the saint whose name you bear. So saying, he gave me absolution and left me. This man left the strongest possible impression on my mind. I did my best, but I could not rid myself of it. I proceeded to pass in review all the saints in the calendar. The Jesuit was the director of M. Flaminio Corner, an old senator and then a state inquisitor. This statesman was a famous man of letters, a great politician, highly religious, an author of several pious and ascetic works written in Latin. His reputation was spotless. On being informed that I should be set free on the feast day of my patron saint, and thinking that my informant ought to know for certain what he told me, I felt glad to have a patron saint. But which is it, I asked myself. It cannot be St. James of Compostela, whose name I bear, for it was on the feast day of that saint that Monsieur Grand burst open my door. I took the almanac, and looking for the saint's days nearest at hand, I found St. George, a saint of some note, but of whom I had never thought. I then devoted myself to St. Mark, 
whose feast fell on the twenty-fifth of the month, and whose protection as a Venetian I might justly claim. To him, then, I addressed my vows, but all in vain, for his feast came round, and still I was imprisoned. Then I took myself to St. James, the brother of Christ, who comes before St. Philip, but again in the wrong. I tried St. Anthony, who, if the tale told at Padua be true, worked thirteen miracles a day. He worked none for me. Thus I passed from one to the other, and by degrees I got to hope in the protection of the saints, just as one hopes for anything one desires, but does not expect to come to pass. And I finished up by hoping only in my saint bar, and in the strength of my arms. Nevertheless, the promise of the Jesuit came to pass, since I escaped from the Leeds on All Hallows' Day, and it is certain that if I had a patron saint, he must be looked for in their number, since they are all honoured on that day. A fortnight after Easter I was delivered from my troublesome Israelite, and the poor devil, instead of being sent back to his home, had to spend two years in the force, and on his gaining his freedom he went and set up in Trieste, where he ended his days. No sooner was I again alone that I set zealously about my work. I had to make haste for fear of some new visitor, who, like the Jew, might insist on the cell being swept. I began by drawing back my bed, and after lighting my lamp I lay down on my belly, my pike in my hand, with a napkin close by in which to gather the fragments of board as I scooped them out. My task was to destroy the board by dint of driving into it the point of my tool. At first the pieces I got away were not much larger than grains of wheat, but they soon increased in size. The board was made of deal, and was sixteen inches broad. I began to pierce it at its juncture with another board, and, as there were no nails or clamps, my work was simple. After six hours' toil I tied up the napkin, and put it on one side to empty it the following day behind the piles of paper in the garret. The fragments were four or five times larger in bulk than the hole from whence they came. I put back my bed in its place, and on emptying the napkin the next morning I took care so to dispose the fragments that they should not be seen. Having broken through the first board, which I found to be two inches thick, I was stopped by a second, which I judged to be as thick as the first. Tormented by the fear of new visitors, I redoubled my efforts, and in three weeks I had pierced the three boards of which the floor was composed, and then I thought that all was lost, for I found I had to pierce a bed of small pieces of marble, known at Venice as Terrazzo Marmorin, this forms the usual floor of Venetian houses of all kinds, except the cottages, for even the high nobility prefer the terrazzo to the finest boarded floor. I was thunderstruck to find that my bar made no impression on this composition, but nevertheless I was not altogether discouraged and cast down. I remembered Hannibal, who, according to Livy, opened up a passage through the Alps, by breaking the rocks with axes and other instruments, having previously softened them with vinegar. I thought that Hannibal had succeeded not by aceto, but aceta, 
which in the Latin of Padua might well be the same as Asha? And who can guarantee the text to be free from the blunders of the copyist? All the same, I poured into the hole a bottle of strong vinegar I had by me, and in the morning, either because of the vinegar, or because I, refreshed and rested, put more strength and patience into the work, I saw that I should overcome this new difficulty. For I had not to break the pieces of marble, but only to pulverize with the end of my bar the cement which kept them together. I soon perceived that the greatest difficulty was on the surface, and in four days the whole mosaic was destroyed, without the point of my pike being at all damaged. Below the pavement I found another plank, but I had expected as much. I concluded that this would be the last, that is, the first to be put down when the rooms below were being sealed. I pierced it with some difficulty, as, the hole being ten inches deep, it had become troublesome to work the pike. A thousand times I commended myself to the mercy of God. Those free thinkers who say that praying is no good do not know what they are talking about, for I know by experience that, having prayed to God, I always felt myself grow stronger, which fact amply proves the usefulness of prayer, whether the renewal of strength comes straight from God, or whether it comes only from the trust one has in Him. On the 25th of June, on which day the Republic celebrates the wonderful appearance of St. Mark, under the form of a winged lion in the ducal church, about three o'clock in the afternoon, as I was laboring on my belly at the hole, stark naked, covered with sweat, my lamp beside me, I heard with mortal fear the shriek of a bolt, and the noise of the door of the first passage. It was a fearful moment. I blew out my lamp, and leaving my bar in the hole, I threw into it the napkin with the shavings it contained and as swift as lightning I replaced my bed as best I could, and threw myself on it, just as the door of my cell opened. If Lawrence had come in two seconds sooner, he would have caught me. He was about to walk over me, but crying out dolefully I stopped him, and he fell back, saying, Truly, sir, I pity you, for the air here is as hot as a furnace. Get up, and thank God for giving you such good company." "'Come in, my lord, come in,' said he to the poor wretch who followed him. Then, without heeding my nakedness, the fellow made the noble gentleman enter, and he, seeing me to be naked, sought to avoid me while I vainly tried to find my shirt. The newcomer thought he was in hell, and cried out, "'Where am I? My God! Where have I been put? What heat! What a stench! With whom am I?' Lawrence made him go out and asked me to put on my shirt to go into the garret for a moment. Addressing himself to the new prisoner, he said that, having to get a bed and other necessaries, he would leave us in the garret till he came back, and that, in the meantime, the cell would be freed from the bad smell, which was only oil. What a start it gave me as I heard him utter the word, oil! In my hurry I had forgotten to snuff the wick after blowing it out. As Lawrence asked me no questions about it, I concluded that he knew all, and the accursed Jew must have betrayed me. I thought myself lucky that he was not able to tell him any more. 
From that time the repulsion which I had felt for Lawrence disappeared. After putting on my shirt and dressing gown, I went out and found my new companion engaged in writing a list of what he wanted the jailer to get him. As soon as he saw me, he exclaimed, Ah, it's Casanova! I, too, recognized him as the Abbe and Count Venerolo, a man of fifty, amiable, rich, and a favorite in society. He embraced me, and when I told him that I should have expected to see anybody in that place rather than him, he could not keep back his tears, which made me weep also. When we were alone, I told him that as soon as his bed came, I should offer him the recess, begging him at the same time not to accept it. I asked him also not to ask to have the cell swept, saying that I would tell him the reason another time. He promised to keep all secrecy in the matter, and said he thought himself fortunate to be placed with me. He said that as no one knew why I was imprisoned, everyone was guessing at it. Some said that I was the Hersiac of a new sect, others that Madame Memmo had persuaded the inquisitors that I had made her sons atheists, and others that Anthony Coldumer, the state inquisitor, had me imprisoned as a disturber of the peace, because I hissed Abbe Chiari's plays, and had formed a design to go to Padua for the express purpose of killing him. All these accusations had a certain foundation in fact, which gave them an air of truth, but in reality they were all wholly false. I cared too little for religion to trouble myself to found a new one. The sons of Madame Memmo were full of wit, and more likely to seduce than to be seduced. And Master Condulmer would have had too much on his hands if he had imprisoned all those who hissed the Abbe Chiari. And as for this Abbe, once a Jesuit, I had forgiven him, as the famous Father Origo, himself formerly a Jesuit, had taught me to take my revenge by praising him everywhere, which incited the malicious to vent their satire on the Abbe, and thus I was avenged without any trouble to myself. In the evening they brought a good bed, fine linen, perfumes, an excellent supper, and choice wines. The Abbe ate nothing, but I supped for two. When Lawrence had wished us good-night, and had shut us up till the next day, I got out my lamp, which I found to be empty, the napkin having sucked up all the oil. This made me laugh, for as the napkin might very well have caught and set the room on fire, the idea of the confusion which would have ensued excited my hilarity. I imparted the cause of my mirth to my companion, who laughed himself, and then, lighting the lamp, we spent the night in pleasant talk. The history of his imprisonment was as follows. Yesterday, at three o'clock in the afternoon, Madame Alessandria, Count Martinengo, and myself got into a gondola. We went to Padua to see the opera, intending to return to Venice afterwards. In the second act, my evil genius led me to the gaming-table, where I unfortunately saw Count Rosenberg, the Austrian ambassador, without his mask, and about ten paces from him was Madame Ruzzini, whose husband is going to Vienna to represent the Republic. I greeted them both, and was just going away, when the ambassador called out to me, so as to be heard by everyone, 
"'You are very fortunate in being able to pay your court to so sweet a lady. "'At present the personage I represent makes the fairest land in the world "'no better for me than a galley. "'Tell the lady, I beseech you, that the laws which now prevent me speaking to her "'will be without force at Venice, where I shall go next year, "'and then I shall declare war against her.' Madame Ruzzini, who saw that she was being spoken of, asked me what the Count had said, and I told her word for word. Tell him, said she, that I accept his declaration of war, and that we shall see who will wage it best. I did not think I had committed a crime in reporting her reply, which was, after all, a mere compliment. After the opera we set out and got here at midnight. I was going to sleep when a messenger brought me a note ordering me to go to the Bussola at one o'clock, Signor Bussinello, secretary of the Council of Ten, having something to say to me. Astonished at such an order, always of bad omen, and vexed at being obliged to obey, I went at the time appointed, and my lord secretary, without giving me a word, ordered me to be taken here. Certainly no fault could be less criminal than that which Count Venerolo had committed. But one can break certain laws in all innocence, without being any the less punishable. I congratulated him on knowing what his crime had been, and told him that he would be set free in a week, and would not be requested to spend six months in the Bresian. I can't think, said he, that they will leave me here for a week, I determined to keep him good company, and to soften the bitterness of his imprisonment, and so well did I sympathize with his position that I forgot all about my own. The next morning, at daybreak, Lawrence brought coffee and a basket filled with all the requisites for a good dinner. The abbe was astonished, for he could not conceive how anyone could eat at such an early hour. They let us walk for an hour in the garret, and then shut us up again, and we saw no more of them throughout the day. The fleas which tormented us made the abbe ask why I did not have the cell swept out. I could not let him think that dirt and untidiness was agreeable to me, or that my skin was any harder than his own, so I told him the whole story, and showed him what I had done. He was vexed at having, as it were, forced me to make him my confidant, but he encouraged me to go on, and if possible to finish what I was about that day, as he said he would help me to descend, and then would draw up the rope, not wishing to complicate his own difficulties by an escape. I showed him the model of a contrivance by means of which I could certainly get possession of the sheets which were to be my rope. It was a short stick attached by one end to a long piece of thread, by this stick I intended to attach my rope to the bed, and, as the thread hung down to the floor of the room below, as soon as I got there I should pull the thread and the rope would fall down. He tried it and congratulated me on my invention, as this was a necessary part of my scheme, as otherwise the rope hanging down would have immediately discovered me. My noble companion was convinced that I ought to stop my work for I might be surprised, having to do several days' work before finishing the whole, which would cost Lawrence his life. 
should the thought of gaining my liberty at the expense of a fellow-creature have made me desist i should have still persisted if my escape had meant death to the whole body of venetian guards and even to the inquisitors themselves can the love of country all holy though it be prevail in the heart of the man whose country is oppressing him my good humour did not prevent my companion having some bad quarters of an hour he was in love with madame alessandria who had been a singer and was either the mistress or the wife of his friend martinengo and he should have deemed himself happy but the happier a lover is so much the more his unhappiness when he is snatched from the beloved object he sighed wept and declared that he loved a woman in whom all the noble virtues were contained i compassionated him and took care not to comfort him by saying that love is a mere trifle a cold piece of comfort given to lovers by fools and moreover it is not true that love is a mere trifle the week i had mentioned as the probable term of his imprisonment passed quickly enough and i lost my friend but did not waste my time by mourning for him he was set free and i was content i did not beg him to be discreet for the least doubt on that score would have wounded his noble spirit during the week he was with me he only ate soup and fruit taking a little canary wine it was i who made good cheer in his stead and greatly to his delight before he left we swore eternal friendship the next day lawrence gave me an account of my money and on finding that i had a balance of four sequins i gave them to him telling him it was a present from me to his wife i did not tell him that it was for the rent of my lamp but he was free to think so if he chose again betaking myself to my work and toiling without cessation on the twenty-third of august i saw it finished this delay was caused by an inevitable accident as i was hollowing out the last plank i put my eye to a little hole through which i ought to have seen the hall of the inquisitors in fact i did see it but i saw also at one side of the hole a surface about eight inches thick it was as i had feared all the time it would be one of the beams which kept up the ceiling i was thus compelled to enlarge my hole on the other side for the beam would have made it so narrow that a man of my size could never have got through i increased the hole therefore by a fourth working between fear and hope for it was possible that the space between two of the beams would not be large enough after i had finished a second little hole assured me that god had blessed my labor i then carefully stopped up the two small holes to prevent anything falling down into the hall and also lest a ray from my lamp should be perceived for this would have discovered all and ruined me i fixed my escape for the eve of st augustine's day because i knew that the grand council assembled on that feast and there would consequently be nobody near the room through which i must pass in getting away this would have been on the twenty-seventh of the month but a misfortune happened to me on the twenty-fifth which makes me still shudder when i think of it 
notwithstanding the years which have passed since then. Precisely at noon I heard the noise of bolts, and I thought I should die, for a violent beating of the heart made me imagine my last hour was come. I fell into my easy chair and waited. Lawrence came into the garret and put his head at the grating and said, I give you joy, sir, for the good news I am bringing you. At first, not being able to think of any other news which could be good to me, I fancied I had been set at liberty, and I trembled, for I knew that the discovery of the hole I had made would have caused my pardon to be recalled. Lawrence came in and told me to follow him. Wait till I put on my clothes. It's of no consequence, as you only have to walk from this abominable cell to another, well-lighted and quite fresh, with two windows, whence you can see half Venice, and you can stand upright, too. I could bear no more. I felt that I was fainting. Give me the vinegar, said I, and go and tell the secretary that I thank the court for this favor, and entreat it to leave me where I am. You make me laugh, sir. Have you gone mad? They would take you from hell to put you in heaven, and you would refuse to stir? Come, come, the court must be obeyed. Pray rise, sir. I will give you my arm, and will have your clothes and your books brought for you. Seeing that resistance was of no avail, I got up, and was much comforted at hearing him give orders for my armchair to be brought, for my pike was to follow me, and with it hope. I should have much liked to have been able to take the whole, the object of so much wasted trouble and hope, with me. I may say with truth that, as I came forth from that horrible and doleful place, my spirit remained there. Leaning on Lawrence's shoulder while he, thinking to cheer me up, cracked his foolish jokes, I passed through two narrow passages, and going down three steps I found myself in a well-lighted hall, at the end of which, on the left side, was a door leading into another passage two feet broad by about twelve long, and in the corner was my new cell. It had a barred window which was opposite to two windows, also barred, which lighted the passage, and thus one had a fine view as far as Lido. At that trying moment I did not care much for the view, but later on I found that a sweet and pleasant wind came through the window when it was opened, and tempered the insufferable heat, and this was a true blessing for the poor wretch who had to breathe the sultry prison air, especially in the hot season. As soon as I got into my new cell, Lawrence had my armchair brought in and went away, saying that he would have the remainder of my effects brought to me. I sat on my armchair as motionless as a statue, waiting for the storm, but not fearing it. What overwhelmed me was the distressing idea that all my pains and contrivances were of no use. Nevertheless, I felt neither sorry nor repentant for what I had done, and I made myself abstain from thinking of what was going to happen, and thus kept myself calm. Lifting up my soul to God, I could not help thinking that this misfortune was a divine punishment for neglecting to escape when all was ready. Nevertheless, 
though I could have escaped three days sooner, I thought my punishment was too severe, all the more as I had put off my escape from motives of prudence, which seemed to me worthy of reward. For if I had only consulted my own impatience to be gone, I should have risked everything. To controvert the reasons which made me postpone my flight to the 27th of August, a special revelation would have been requisite. And though I had read Mary of Agrada, I was not mad enough for that. End of chapter 27 Recording by Eva Easton, Slotesburg, New York